Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be in dialogue with Lisa Kovala. She is an author, a teacher, and a book coach. We are here today to discuss Surviving Stutthof, My Father's Memories Behind the Death Gate, published in Sudbury, Ontario by Latitude 46 Publishers, 2017. Lisa, it means the world to me to be in dialogue with you today. Oh, thanks, Ari. It's so nice to be here with you. To begin, please tell us about Arn. What would you like listeners to know about him? What does this memoir reveal about your father? Yeah, so my father was Arne Kovala, um, and he was um, born in Finland, in Oulu, Finland, uh, in 1928. Um, he was a very kind and generous and really happy person um, as a, as a um, you know, throughout my life, that's how I remember him. He died in 2018 at the age of 90. Um, and I think this memoir reveals uh, some things about his personality. You know, they, they were very traumatic events that he witnessed and, you know, how he was treated and others were treated, you know, were just devastating. But it shows how resilient he was and how determined he was. And I think he clung to hope of some kind. And the idea of uh, the Finnish characteristic of Sisu, which is, you know, that courage and determination um, in the face of great adversity, I think it really displays his Sisu as a young man going through this. He was only 16 at the time that he was uh, in Stutthof concentration camp. What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? How did you handle these adversities? What aspects of your writing process were most therapeutic for you? How did you grow? So I'm a fairly emotional person and I needed to prepare myself for this process of interviewing my father. We started in 2012. He was 84 years old. He hadn't really spoken too much about what had happened to him when he was 16 in the concentration camp. And I wanted to know everything I could before I started the interviews. So I read Holocaust memoirs. I read books about uh, the concentration camps, everything I could about the war that I thought was going to be applicable to this project. And I kind of think about it as putting on armor. If I was um, 
understanding what happened, then when he would tell me his personal stories, I would be forearmed. I would understand what had happened and it would be less personal. I mean, it was, was always going to be personal, but I felt like I would handle it better from an emotional standpoint. So that's what I did. I really, really prepared for these interviews. And then when I went to do the interviews, uh, I came prepared with questions and what was life going to be like um, for him and uh, being ready to, um, you know, ask follow up questions and those kinds of things. So I, I kind of thought of it like a, a journalist. But at the end of the day, my dad had his every Sunday morning we met at his house with my mom and she made coffee and I had my laptop and I had a little uh, re recorder and he would know what he wanted to talk about that day and so in fact I didn't need any questions at all because he just was prepared so it was uh, uh you kind of had to go with the flow and figure out how this was going to work um so at first he spoke about his childhood in Olu Finland then he spoke about the winter war. He was 11 years old, um, the war between Russia and Finland. Then he talked about his life on the merchant marine ship. And then he started talking about moving to Canada. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's not going to talk about life in the concentration camp. He skipped all over that. He just went right past it. And so that was a really a worry for me that he wasn't going to be able to talk about it at all. Then in that winter, he suffered a concussion and he lost some memories for a little while. I really thought the project was done. He was not well. And um, so it took a couple of weeks and he recovered. And then he, we were back into interviews again and, and that was fine. It took very many, you know, many months before he was actually able to start talking to me about um, his experiences in the Nazi concentration camp. And that was probably the biggest adversity we had was just getting to the point where he was able to talk about it. And so that was, um, that was difficult, but also I think he needed that time. And perhaps I needed that time, um, just to sit and talk and reflect on life. So in terms of how, uh, therapeutic it was for me, well, I think writing is always therapeutic for me. I feel like if I haven't written for a while, I'm maybe not doing as well mentally, maybe even physically. So therapy, it is always therapeutic, but I think it was more therapeutic for my dad because like I say, he hadn't told these stories too often. He, I, he'd shared bits and pieces with us as family members over the years, but I didn't really quite understand how the stories went together. In fact, I didn't always know that the stories he was telling were that he was involved in them so that was uh interesting and I know he told friends and family members other you know bits of the story so by the end of this process and we had finished the book and it was published he started coming out to events with me so a book signing for instance and now he was able to talk about his experiences to strangers so it was like this big transformation from somebody who could barely talk to me about that, those things at the beginning to being able to talk about it kind of more openly with others. And I thought that was an amazing thing that the power of telling your story to somebody and sharing it with others means that you can, you know, become um, a little bit more at peace with things. So I, I mean, I can't say if, if, you know, 
he had nightmares his whole life. Um, it's not that it went away, but it, I think it did help. And I think it validated what happened to him that other people were acknowledging it. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What inspired you to prepare this book? What hope, what message do you hope to convey to your readers? Right. Well, I was probably in grade 10 history class when we were studying World War II. And I remember my teacher was Mr. Poff. He was a great history teacher. And I knew that my dad had been through something, but I didn't really know what he'd been through. And I was determined even then. I loved to write even as a kid, as a child, and as a uh, in high school, I did a lot of creative writing. And I wanted to write this book about my dad. So I made a decision at about 15 that I would do that. Well, I went to teacher's college and I got married and I had children. And then when I was 40, my mom called me and said, listen, there's a lady we know, a friend of ours who'd like to write your dad's book, a story, write about him. And um, my mom said, but I told her my daughter's going to do that. And I thought, oh, okay, it's time. <laughs> so I, I better do this. And like I say, my dad was 84 at the time. So I, I knew that there was a little bit of pressure. I couldn't put this off for, you know, another two or three decades. <laughs> I needed to write this story. And so we ended up starting the interviews in 2012, January 2012. So I'm hoping that readers will come away with a few things. One is, is just another story, another perspective of what happened at that time. Um, you know, we have a lot of memoirs and various things that have um documented um what happened but you know i think every person's story is important and essential and i wanted um you know the overall idea of of hope and despite the traumatic experiences people have whether whatever it may be that that glimmer of hope is always there and not never to give up and be resilient so that you can you know come to the other side of course um maybe easier said than done right but you know the idea that um even though he had moments of hopelessness um something would happen that was just a, enough a kindness enough um something somebody said or did that would bring him uh able to go a little bit farther stay uh moving forward so i think ultimately it's it's really about hope Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Can you summarize your book for us? Yes. Um, so uh, it begins with Arnie as a young boy um, who has a real love of the sea. He is uh, a young boy in Old Finland in 1940 during the Winter War. Um, and then he, at the age of about 15, too young to join the war efforts, he becomes a sailor on a merchant marine ship, delivering goods between Finland, Poland, and Germany. But when Finland's ties with Germany are severed during the signing of the Moscow Armistice in 1944, he and his fellow sailors are imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp um, called Stutthof. And here he experiences um, a struggle to survive, these dead, dreadful living conditions, scarce food, grueling work details. So it really, it's a tale about survival and hope and the triumph of the human spirit. 
What kinds of choiceless choices or impossible ethical dilemmas are depicted in this memoir? That's a great question. Um, so the, I think there are a lot of choiceless choices um, and situations that these sailors, there were about 90 Finnish sailors and, and others in this concentration camp um, that the cho choices are really taken away from you, right? But there's one story that I could convey that describes this probably in detail. And, and I'll mention it because it was one of the most difficult stories my dad told me. In fact, before he told me this, he said, don't put, don't write this down. And I thought, oh no, what is he going to tell me? And he said, don't write this down. And he told me the story and, and, and he was very emotional about it. He was, uh, you know, not a person, you know, to, I would normally see, um, get very emotional, but he, he was in this moment. So he described how there was um, the Finns and the Norwegian policemen were housed in the same barracks of the concentration camp. And um, things were going missing, things were being stolen. And so one of the leaders of that group said, okay, well, we need to talk about this and what are we gonna do? And if we catch this person, there needs to be repercussions because we cannot be stealing from one another, right? They need to support one another. They can't be stealing from, from each other. And so the decision was made with the whole group that the thief would be punished. And in fact, they did catch the thief. And the punishment was um, a beating. But in order that not one person was responsible for that, each member, each person was going to strike a blow. And I think like, I'm, uh, I feel very emotional about it right now, actually. Um, so he, my father had to do it. They all did. And it's not something anyone wanted to do because this person was one of their own. So it was extremely emotional for him to tell me the story. And afterwards I said, dad, I'm going to write the story in the book, but if you decide for me to take it out, I will. And down the road, I did write it and he wrote, read every single draft of this book, every single version, right from the very beginning, right to the end. He, cause I, I, I was, I'm writing his story. So he needed to tell me if something was not right, or if I had misrepresented something, or if there were more details and I left it in there with the idea that he could take it out. And he, um, he said, leave it because it was an important moment. So when you talk about choiceless choices, um, you know, in, in these circumstances that I can barely imagine, um, you do things that are not necessarily what you would do in your real life, like in, in everyday life, this is not who you are, but it's what you need to do. And I think he, that was the moment that haunted him because that is not who he is, but it's what was, um, necessary at the moment. In, in some way. How does this memoir advance our understanding of the Holocaust? So I think what it does is helps us, um, I think it helps us understand uh, one more story, one more group of people um, and what happened 
um, to them in this Nazi concentration camp. There were 28 ethnic uh, um, ethnicities in the concentration camp, mostly Jewish people, but lots of other reasons for people to be there. Uh, and, you know, demonstrating that, you know, if you were not for the Nazis, you were against them and you were the enemy. And um, I think it just is useful for us to see all of the kinds of stories coming out of this time period, um, especially when we keep hearing off and on the Holocaust deniers and, um, you know, the idea that, that, that these things didn't happen. Yes, they happened. Yes, we have documents about this. Uh, you know, even the, the Nazis were incredibly uh, prolific in terms of documenting what they did and having their records and all of those things, um, you know, whether documenting it uh, by film or whatnot. So I think this is just another story that people can read that will help them understand some something about this experience. But even more so, it was important for me to write it because I wanted my own children to understand what happened to my father. And I knew that those stories go if we don't tell them. And so for as a family, we, we, we felt it was an important thing. And I'm just really grateful that so many other people saw it as important and needed to understand and read it. Um, to get a better sense of, of what happened then and what happened to him and to the others and just in terms of the time period as well. So from a personal level, that was the most important thing initially. I couldn't agree more. And uh, to be honest, as with the Holocaust among Jews, I'm sure among Finns as well, there's a real dilemma as Finland and Finns enter a post-survivor era with regard to World War II, the Continuation War, the Winter War, uh, the events of the Holocaust, I imagine that this is something that Finland and Finnish collective memory and Finnish education are coping with in a very real way. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it was interesting to me when I was working on it, and even when I speak to people about it now, if even Finnish people, they're not aware of this story. They didn't know about it. They didn't know that we had, there were Finns in concentration camps. And, you know, there weren't thousands, but there were Finns. And so I think it broadens their mind too about what was happening, that their their countrymen were, were incarcerated as well, imprisoned, and some died in the concentration camps. Um, yeah, so I think, it, I think it's important, these stories from all nationalities that we write them and we, we document them. What was it like for you growing up as the child of a concentration camp survivor? How did your father's experiences impact his parenting towards you? Yeah, so growing up um, in my household, a very Finnish household, I was the youngest of four children. Um, and I would say that, um, I always knew he had something, something had happened. Like I say, he uh, was an insomniac. He barely, you know, had a difficulty sleeping. Um, he had lots of nightmares. And so I, there was always this kind of um, shadow, maybe you could say. But he was such a happy, lovely person, warm person, very generous person that, you know, 
in the daytime, people wouldn't really understand that, right? Like they, they just saw him as this, you know, they didn't even know he'd been through something so devastating. He, he was really quite, um, um, generous with his time and helping other people. And, but I found as a father, perhaps he was maybe more protective than some of the parents around me. He, um, he didn't want any of his children harmed. He was, you know, he was, he was very much a risk taker himself. Um, you know, he was doing roofing with a really bad thing at the age of 80. You know, he was, um, sort of didn't worry about himself, but he really worried about the children. And so, you know, he always wanted to make sure we weren't doing anything that would, um, cause us harm. And I think now that's because he knew the worst things that could happen. And he didn't want to see that happen to us. So I feel like that was part of it. So there was kind of the two sides. I saw the kind of the little bit of darkness, the depression, the insomnia, but also the other side where he just wanted to live life to the fullest and, and be generous and happy and telling jokes and telling stories. And he was a very social person. Um, so I sort of saw both of those, those aspects of him as, as, uh, as a child. And now as an adult, I think, okay, that all makes sense to me. <laughs> it's all, it's all part of what happened to him, uh, who he has, who he's become. On the cover of your book, there's a quotation from Marina Nimatz, a notable Iranian human rights activist stating, read this, it will make you a better person. What do you feel that she means by this? How can this book make its reader a better person indeed? Mm, I love that quotation from Marina. So I first met Marina Nemed at the University of Toronto and I was taking a memoir course and it was her very first course that she was teaching at University of Toronto. And we had a small group of lovely writers who were working on projects. And she had herself been imprisoned in Evan prison at the age of 16. So there was this remarkable sort of connection with her right from the beginning. Um, and she was very encouraging and instrumental in helping me with this project at different stages and continues to be a great supporter. Um, so I think what she means is that we need stories like this about real people and the things that happened to them. And so that we don't forget about that, that time period um, and that we are armed with knowledge of what is possible. Um, so Marina's own story and other memoirs about imprisonment in the Holocaust and different time periods help us to see our humanity, our um, hopefulness, um, the strength in the survivors and help us understand about perseverance and how human kindness is so important to get us through these um, terrible times. Um, and that we also need to read the difficult things, right? We have to confront what has happened in our own histories. And when we read, we can read a history book and get the facts and we can get the stats and we can get the data, but, but when we get a personal story, we really understand um, what we can connect that in an emotional level. And that, I think that's what, why it can make us better people. Who was Stanislav, your tour guide in Poland, who took you to Stutthof? Can you say more about him? Sure, Stanislav. So we went to, um, uh, we did a trip, to, a research trip, my husband and I, to Poland and Germany 
trying to gather as much information as we could. And we went to Stutthof concentration camp, which is now a museum. It's not, it's, it's not all the buildings there. Lots are missing, but we were able to see the main camp and we had a tour. So I had booked an English tour guide because I just wanted, um, you know, not just to wander around on my own, but to have somebody explain things to me. And so I could ask questions. And so our guide, Stanislaw, explained that he had been a 16-year-old as well, and he had been in, imprisoned in a German concentration camp. So he was actually in Germany, not in Stutthof. But it was really important for him to um, share his knowledge and um, give these tours to tourists and to um, others who were interested in what happened there. Um, and so I explained what I was doing, why I was there, that I was working on a project about my dad. And I told him about the Finnish sailors and Stanislaw, uh, we walked around and he, you know, he explained everything so well. And I was taking pictures and I was touching the walls and I was looking over the maps and all the images. And it was just such a um, incredibly moving experience. The whole thing was, you know, just incredible. And at the end, we were about to say goodbye. And uh, I mean, we both started crying. He did, I did. It was very, very emotional. Um, and I, like, he just got it. He understood why I was there, what the purpose was. He, I think he um, appreciated that I was going to write this story from about my dad. And um, yeah, even now I'm welling up because he, you know, it was just such a special moment. He, he kept it all business during the tour. He was, he would, you know, he would tell, explain things and answer my questions and all the things, but at the very end, we both just broke down and I have to say the heavens opened up and, um, you know, it was just, uh, we had a little downpour of, of rain and I don't know, everything just felt, um, kind of surreal in that moment. And I, so I will never forget him. He was an incredible human being. Can you describe the social and physical geography of Stutthof camp? Yeah, so Stutthof camp was um, the first Nazi concentration camp built outside of Germany and the last one to be liberated. And it's, uh, um, it was built in sort of a wooded area near town, and I won't say the name the name correctly, so I apologize for anybody who is Polish. Um, Stutowa, I believe, and so it's about thirty two kilometers uh, east of Danzig or uh, Gdansk, which was Danzig at the time, and it was fairly isolated. I think they were trying to ensure that you know there wasn't any prying eyes. It wasn't super close to anything. Um, and to the north is the Bay of Danzig, and to the east is the Vistula Bay, and to the west is the Vistula River. So it was a fairly wet um, area that was a sort of a, a, like about at sea level, actually. Um, the camp was built there, uh, surrounded by uh, electrified barbed wire fence, um, in September uh, 1939. The idea was that they would uh, complete the Germanization of this area within five years. Um, so initially it was housing Polish, um, members of Polish, leaders of Polish society. They were arrested and exterminated there. Um, and then by, um, uh, after it was a civilian internment camp, it became a labor education camp uh, under the uh, German security police. And then it became a concentration camp in 1942, and it started to expand. By the second half of 1944, 
which is when my father was incarcerated, uh, it became part of the final solution to the Jewish question. Um, and even then there were plans to expand the camp. There were, you know, this, you know, quite extensive um, plans to make it even bigger. So um, my, my dad was arrested in September, 1944. And he spent the, that final 1944 to the, to, until liberation um, in the camp, along with other Finnish sailors and Norwegian policemen. Uh, and like I said earlier, it housed 28 different ethnic groups, um, but mostly Jewish um, prisoners. How did the experiences of Finns in Stutthof differ from those of Norwegians in Stutthof? Can you compare and contrast? Um, so the that's a good question. I think the, the main thing, the Finns and the Norwegians were um, housed in the same barracks and they had very many of the same conditions. I think one of the differences is the Norwegians were getting care packages delivered to them. Um, through the Red Cross, the Finns were not at that stage. Um, so what happened was that they were often being shared uh, with all of the inmates. And I think that was really integral for the Finns to maintain their health and to um, keep going. Like it's like I say, those small acts of kindness, being sharing something from somebody's care package meant that, um, you know, it helped them survive that much longer and um, maintain some health along the way. So their experiences, I would say, uh, were very, fairly similar, um, but their collectively, their experiences was probably different from what was happening in the main camp where, um, you know, conditions were really, really terrible for other people. There was a thought that the Nazis wanted the Scandinavians, the Nordic people to um, join um, them and um, they kept refusing. So they had maybe better conditions for a while and eventually um, they just worsened. And after the death marches, when they were in the main camp, um, it was terrible for everybody, right? Like it just went downhill. So I think initially uh, they might've had a little bit more access to hygiene and um, possibly less grueling work details at the beginning, um, but those conditions changed and got worse for them all. Who is Anna Lisa? Can you describe her importance? Yeah, so that's actually the name of my grandmother, Anna Lisa. And actually that's my name as well, although I just go by Lisa. So I'm named after her. And she was my grandmother. She is my dad's mother. And I think she was such an important person um, in, um, in our lives, but also in this um, part, this time period of my father's life. Um, she was um, a person that kept everything going. She would, uh, you know, when there were food stamps, she would um, go and trade for food. She would ride her bicycle to nearby farms <laughs> to, to make some deals and, and get some fresh produce or whatever it was. And she was making sure that the family was taken care of. So I think she was um, just somebody who also had that, you know, finished Sisu, just did what she had to do. When my dad was a young boy, his his brother went off to war. Um, his older brother, Gala, was two years older. My dad was too young. 
and but he was determined he couldn't sit at home he couldn't stay and do nothing and he um, told them he was going to Helsinki to find work and um, it's hard to imagine because I've had young kids that you would let your son go off you know at 15 Um, but my dad was determined and my mother uh, my grandmother and my grandfather did allow him to go and you know as as fate happens he ended up on this um on this ship that was uh fated for Stutthof concentration camp um he did send a letter to her and to his his parents um but they never received it until after the war so they didn't know what happened to him all of those months and months and months of being in Stutthof he they did not know what, what had happened she did have a dream about him at one point uh and he was telling her that he was okay so somehow that was that trying to hold on to um that hope that he was alive but she didn't know until he came home can you describe Arn's personality and character what traits and virtue ethics did he exhibit and display can you share a psychological profile of sorts of Arn? Yeah, so he was, um, you know, he, like I say, he'd gone through so much as a young person and um, that determination that he had, that perseverance or some of the qualities I think he exhibited then as a young person, even at 15, wanting to go and do something, right, going to Helsinki to work, um, going on a, um, a, a the, the ship, working on the ship, at such a young age, you know, uh, he lied about his age, of course. Um, but when he finished after the war, when he um, decided to come to Canada, he took all kinds of different jobs. He was always on the move. He he wasn't really settling any one place. I feel like he he was looking for something, or maybe escaping something, or trying to, um, you know, just having ex- different experiences. So what happened was a friend of his said. Oh, I have my paperwork to go to Canada. You should fill yours out too, Arnie. And my dad um, thought, oh, I'll fill out those papers to go to Canada and see what happens. And then, you know, however long later, weeks or months later, he got the paperwork back that yes, he could go. And um, he told his parents, okay, I'm I'm off. I'm going to Canada. (laughs) You know, he just made these quick decisions and he just went and did what he wanted to do. Um, And like I say, he was such a very kind and generous person, always ready to help somebody else who was in need or somebody who um, was working on something, he'd stop and help them. And he loved to tell stories and he loved to laugh and he loved his coffee and chocolate chip cookies. Um, But on the flip side, as I mentioned, he did suffer from nightmares and insomnia for his whole life. He had um, stomach complaints that we think are, you know, because of the poor diet um, he had in the concentration camp, you know, the starvation diet really is what it was. Um, But he loved people. He wanted personal connections with people. He loved to listen to their stories. Um, I think he, you know, he could have got come out of this experience being very angry or depressed or um, uh, an alcoholic or something else, but that's not what he chose. He chose to be happy person productive person filled with love and joy for other people so you know having gone through all of those terrible experiences um 
he chose to see love in the world. What were the similarities and differences between the treatment of Finns in Stutthof and the treatment of Jews in Stutthof? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, I think that Jewish camp in Stutthof was particularly horrifying uh, compared to the rest of the camp. Um, by, the t by 1944, the conditions had worsened for everybody, um, but the Jewish camp was really growing incredibly fast and they kept getting new imports, uh, transports of um, Jewish inmates. And, you know, things like the mothers were being separated from their children and they would be sent off to Auschwitz. Um, and, you know, there was extreme brutality there, starvation, terrible um, conditions for living and sleeping. Um, they even had smaller food rations than others. Um, and they didn't receive any care packages from the Red Cross like the Scandinavians did. Um, so, it, you know, I think that their conditions were just so devastating. Um, and in terms of the Norwegians and the Finns, they were housed, especially initially, in a separate part of the camp called Germanenlager. And there, like I said earlier, they were treated a little bit better at first. Um, their roll calls were a little bit less intense. Um, they were able to have better hygiene um, and they were still receiving those care packages, which I think were important from home um, and able to share them with each other. Um, but like I say, after the death march, everyone was, the, the camp had uh, diminished in numbers because so many people died during the death march that everyone was housed in the main camp and the conditions for all inmates were um, incredibly challenging. But I do think that um, it's probably why my dad was able to survive is they, um, there was a time period when, when their conditions were better than others. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. What forms of abuse and torture does this memoir document? Yes, I mean, so many um, that, you know, are really quite devastating to think about. So Stutthof was a notoriously brutal camp. I, I might just share with you that my dad and I and our family went to um, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum on a trip. And uh, he, it was a place he'd always wanted to go to. And we walked into the main um, 
area. I don't know if you've ever been, but there's, you know, the brick walls and, and glass ceilings. And, and for some reason, my dad just walked straight across the hall, this kind of foyer to a lady sitting at a, at a table and she was a Holocaust survivor. And she said, like, it was incredibly moving. She said she only came on Wednesdays. She volunteered for years and years. And she only came, came on Wednesdays between this time and this time. And that she was from Stodhoff and so was my dad. And uh, she said she almost never saw survivors from Stodhoff because there's so few of them. And so even though she'd been doing this for years and years, um, she just didn't usually meet them. So they, we ha they had a, this very, very, very touching embrace and moment. And we were all in tears, of course. But it goes to show that how notoriously brutal Stutthof was that people just didn't survive. When when people arrived there, um, one of the speeches that was made early on was, uh, I, I wrote it down here, from now on, you are no longer men, just numbers. You lost all your rights, left them behind the gate. Only one right remains and that uh, what you can do now is fly out of this chimney. So just from the moment you arrive, you don't know that you're ever going to leave. Um, so they had, uh, you know, they had to deal with disease. They had to deal with typhus, which decimated the camp um, in 1942 and also in 1944. But there were so many different forms of torture and abuse that the prisoners had to deal with. Um, of course, it was a forced labor camp. So you, there were a variety of different jobs um, prisoners had to do, and they were just grueling, grueling jobs, very long hours on very few rations. Um, and there was a you know, vast net network of uh, subcamps that um, included this sort of forced labor throughout Northern and Central Poland. Um, prisoners got you know, maybe 20% of the rations that you would need to do that kind of work. And they were working these long hours, 10 to 12 hours a day, and so many of them died of exhaustion, just overwork. And then they had a hospital there, um, but you know, not necessarily to treat you. But instead, if you weren't able to, you know, if you were you if you were really unwell, um, it was more of a situation of extermination, um, unless they thought that you could convalesce long enough to go back to work. It was the idea. So they had to deal with um, beatings and abuse, both mental and uh, physical. Um, if you were, if you looked like you might be avoiding work, if you weren't um, somehow um, doing what you're supposed to be doing, if you didn't take off like your hat in time for an SS man, um, if you were caught doing something like hiding your food or smoking cigarettes, or if you didn't make your bunk well enough, or maybe if you fired up the stove because it was too cold, you could be beaten for that. Um, and whipping was done sometimes as punishment and was done publicly, often during roll call. Um, and people would be stretched out over a, sort of a sawhorse and lots of um, people died as a result of that kind of a whipping. And then there was this terrible form of punishment, which was called a stake. And inmates' hands were tied behind their backs. And then they were tied to a beam. And that was raised so that you couldn't reach um, your toes to the ground. So very torturous, terrible form of abuse. Um, and then there was something called the bunker, which was solitary confinement. And you might be there for a couple of days, two, two three, four days in a very small dark room. I remember walking into that bunker just, you know, and just thinking how awful it would be to be um, 
um, been present in that. And uh, lots of inmates um, died after having been in, in that bunker. Um, and of course there was um, death by hanging and that could be for other serious crimes like sabotage or organizing resistance. Or if you tried to escape for instance, or if you assaulted an officer um, or even for theft, um, like stealing turnips. And then whole blocks or groups, uh, commandos might be um, punished by um, having to stand for hours and hours and hours on end, sort of like at roll call um, or do exercises when it should have been you know, time for rest or maybe taking away your meals. So there's just every way that, that you can imagine of um, making life terrible, torturous, abusive. Um, that these prisoners had to endure. What was life like for Arne in Sudbury, Ontario? How did he acclimatize to life in Canada? Yeah, so when my dad left um, Finland for uh, Canada, it was 1951, he was 23. Um, and he'd already done his, like after the war, if you can imagine that he had to do his compulsory military training at the age of 19. So he did do that. He was uh, awarded the worst soldier ever. Uh, I think they treated him very kindly uh, because they knew what he had been through. Um, and uh, he did get through his, through his military training. Um, but uh, when he came to Canada, uh, like I said, he really did work um, all over the country. So he worked at uh, lumber camps up north. He worked for a while on the Great Lakes on a boat. Um, he went to Smelter and worked in Kitimat, uh, BC for a few years. Um, he, at one time he thought he'd go to Vancouver and work on a ship again. So there was, you know, lots of different jobs. He was in Sudbury for a while. Um, he kind of where, wandered and where, wherever he, the wind blew him. And I think he was quite restless in a way, but he had some amazing experiences and met people all over the country. Um, and he did this for several years. Um, so I think that probably he had a hard time just settling down, but when he returned to Sudbury, he found work on uh, a smokestack in Coppercliff. He actually kept going there every day. At first, the guy said, the foreman said, no, there's no jobs, but my dad went back every day with his hard hat on and his, um, you know, lunch pail in hand. And they, they said, oh, there's no work, Arnie. There's no work. And then finally, after a few days, the supervisor just hired him because this guy was not going to give up. So that kind of goes to show what, what kind of personality my dad had. Um, he met and married my mom. Uh, they got married in 1958. And they then went on to work on smokestacks all over the country. Well, he did and she came along. And um, the, my two oldest brothers, Tom and John, um, traveled with them. And it wasn't until my brother Tom was school age that they decided they should settle down and they returned to Sudbury. So Sudbury has a large Finnish population. And so he already had friends here. He'd worked here before. He knew people. But now they were coming to stay and coming to live. And, you know, I think it was a great place for him to be because there were so many Finnish people. He could speak his language. He felt, you know, uh, real connections to the community. Um, and I think that was really integral to his, um, his life. Um, 
And then he worked on as the carpenter on these smokestacks. And his last smokestack was the Inco Superstack um, that he they built in, in the early 70s. And he was a foreman on that job. Um, and I have a really great picture of him actually sitting on top of the smokestack with copper clip below. And you can see the little chimneys below. And he's wearing his hard hat and his steel-toed boots. And they're just tucked under the beam. No safety gear whatsoever. Broad smile on his face. Like, it's just... <laughs> You know, that would never happen today, but, um, you know, that was him. He, he no fear at all. And, um, yeah, so after that, he worked as carpenter, uh, on a lot of big projects in Sudbury, like our hospital and a mall and our university and the theater center and various places. So, you know, he, he found, he made a life for himself here, had his family here. He um, built a camp here on Lake Panache where, you know, that was his, the place he most loved to go to and, and be working there and sit by the water. And um, yeah, I feel like it was, this was the right place for him to be. Um, but I don't think he, he, to my knowledge, he didn't keep in touch with any of the people um, after his war experiences. Perhaps he did that I don't know about. He did keep uh, in touch with his best friend, Mati, who I write about in the first early chapters. Um, they were best friends as children and they remained best friends throughout uh, their lives. And so there were you know, numerous phone calls and my dad did go back to Finland a few times. Um, and so I also have had the privilege of being in contact with Mati as well. So that was nice to see that that early childhood friendship was maintained. But as far as the other sailors go, I don't know if he had any contact with any of them. Um, and he was the youngest. There was two of them, Galavi, and he were, you know, 16 at the time. And lots of the men were lots older, too. And so um, I don't think any of them are still still living. Even while we were working on this book, I think there might have been one other person still alive. Um, but who never spoke about his experiences and would not. So it wasn't somebody that we could even contact um, for information. But yeah, I think, you know, it took a while to acclimatize to life in Canada, you know, he and, and to not be as restless and to find a place to call home. In addition to Mati, did Arn have any other Finnish friends? Was he connected to the Finnish expatriates community in Ontario? Was he in touch with any other survivors or fellow inmates in Canada? Yeah, so he, so like I say, Sudbury has a really um, good-sized Finnish population between Toronto and Sudbury and um, Thunder Bay. There's, you know, large communities of Finnish people. We have, um, you know, so my dad was really... Um, you know, I think knew everybody really is, is, is that kind of person. Um, we went to Finnish church and went to a Finnish dance halls um, and uh, Finnish um, sports clubs where my brother skied. And so he, you know, he had a lot, he had a, you know, vast number of Finnish friends here in Sudbury, which was really wonderful. Um, but, it, but like I say, in terms of connections, um, and, you know, lots of connections to home, like Finland, he has relatives and, um, there still, and, um, and they would visit as well. So the, the, that community was really important to him, I think. Was there any discernible impact of post-traumatic stress disorder on Arn after the war? Did he adjust smoothly to life in Canada after the war? 
So I, I mean, PTSD wasn't really a diagnosis given in the fifties, right? But knowing what we know about it, I, I don't want to diagnose him, but I think that he definitely had um, symptoms of PTSD um, that he exhibited throughout the years. Early on, my dad was telling me when I was interviewing him that actually my dad didn't tell me this. My mother did that after the war, when he returned home from um, to Olu, his his mother, my grandmother, said that my dad hoarded food and did that for many, many, many months, just taking food and hiding it because that's what they did, right? Like there was no food in the camp. They, they had such terrible diets and, you know, you would eat anything you thought might um, sustain you. So that continued on after the war and eventually it did stop, but he did um, suffer from that. And then, like I say, he suffered from insomnia. He suffered from um, night terrors, um, which were very challenging. My mother describes waking up because he was thrashing about, because he was having some kind of nightmares and she'd have to wake him up so he wouldn't hurt himself. Um, and I remember before we started our interviews together, he said to me, I feel like this was Christmas of 2011. He said, you know, if you just came around here around three in the morning, I'm, I'll be awake from, I'll have woken from a nightmare and ever, all of those memories come back to me in technicolor. So the fact that he continued to dream and have nightmares after, you know, decades and decades and decades later, um, like it's astonishing to me that that was, that he was still suffering in that way. Um, once we had the book finished, and we'd gone through the whole process. And I was, I think I was probably rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, but basically the book was done and I was, um, the interviews had stopped except for when I had questions or I had things that I need to ask him. I was driving him to his favorite place, which was Lanela's bakery. And I was you know, dropping him off to meet his friends for coffee. Uh, something I did every day, um, when I was going off to work and he told me he'd had a dream. And in that dream, he was pouring concrete, which is normal because, you know, he was at, in construction. He did a lot of pouring of concrete and he was smoothing it out with a trowel and he was sort of in some kind of a ditch of some, some sort. And he looked up and there was an SS officer standing over him. And my father just yelled at that SS officer and said, you can't hurt me anymore. Not even Hitler can hurt me. And that to me was so powerful powerful that dream because that's not the kind of dreams he was having before this one was empowering this one was like you can't do anything to me and I I thought that just showed he his transformation in terms of before writing this book and then um post writing this book that he was really in a better place not that you're he was you know I don't know the, the word cure is the right one but not that you're cured but that um it, it had done something helpful for him therapeutically um, after having gone through this experience. How did Arn meet the woman who would become his wife and your mother? Yeah, so my mom's name is Anya and she grew up, she's also, her parents were from Finland, so she, but she was born here in, in Ontario. She was born in a little place called Wanup, which is part of Sudbury, just outside of Sudbury in a farming community. And my mom always dreamed about marrying a sailor <laughs> and I thought okay there are no sailors in one in the farm country but 
Uh, she went to a dance at Sample Hall, which is um, a Finnish hall here, and it's no longer um, it no longer exists. But it was a pretty big place for people to gather and do sports and uh, other activities. So she was at this dance hall, and she saw this man across the room, and he started to walk towards her. And she thought to herself, this is the man I'm going to marry. And lo and behold, it was my dad, of course. And they did get married. And of course, my dad was a sailor. So she was right all along. She was going to marry a sailor. And she did. And that's how that happened. And they had four children, three sons, and then me. What was life like for Arne before the Winter War and before the outbreak of World War II? What was it like for him growing up in Oulu, Finland. Yeah, so life in, I write about this in the book because I wanted to show what, like you say, life was like in Oulu before the war. Um, and then, you know, how this war comes about and then um, what happens. So this Oulu is on uh, the west of Finland on the coast on the Baltic. And he lived uh, in a small um, house with his mom, Annalisa, and his dad, Yossi. And he had four siblings, Hemo, Luli, Veiko, and Agale. And um, it was really a kind of a lovely childhood. I mean, I don't think they had very much. I think it was not easy. I think my grandmother and grandfather worked really hard. But, um, you know, he describes all kinds of activities they did. And that was, um, you know, sort of magical, like things like all the kids in the neighborhood collected matchstick boxes and then they trade them. And uh, a neighbor um, was really into acting. So they would put on little plays in the yard with sheets <laughs> strung on the um, clothesline. Um, and yeah, so they, they lived uh, on a Isokadu for a while near the center town. And then they moved to Kuosiluoto, which is near the shore. And that's, my dad had so many memories of, of um, the friends he had and um, being at, like playing at the sea. They ha everyone had little boats that they had. My dad's boat had a motor on it. So that was very exciting because he could tug other boats behind him. And they used to go off to the nearby islands. And they had sort of like little like uh, rivalries with other groups of boys who also had boats and they'd have like these little wars at sea with them. And it was kind of magical. Um, you know, they they played in the Inala Park and um, he describes riding down the rapids of the river and it sounded quite exciting and dangerous at the same time. And, you know, he seemed to get into a lot of mischief with his friends. They had a had an um, old rifle that they used to try to shoot um, windows out of an old warehouse with. Like, uh, you know, I think they had a lot of fun, probably took a few, few risks as children. And, uh, you know, he, he just recalled that time period as being just such a lovely time in his life. And then in 1939, um, the war started and in, in January uh, 1940, Olu was bombed and things changed. There was no more school, life changed for all of them. And yeah, so I think I just, I wanted to show this happy childhood time of his life in contrast to what was about to happen in terms of, of war. And then of course, um, life in the concentration camp. 
How and why did Finns wind up in Stuttgart? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, a little bit complicated. So about a little over a year, maybe 15 months after the Winter War ended, um, Finns started, uh, uh, well, there was uh, what we call the continuation of war, uh, June 25th, 1941 to September 4th, 1944. So essentially, Finland made a, a military alliance with Germany. And the idea was that they were going to get back the land they lost during the Winter War to Russia. And so Germany invaded the Soviet Union in, in June, uh, June 22nd. And then um, on the 25th, the Soviet Union conducted an air raid in Finland and Finland declared war. So the war started and now we have, you know, this conflict happening again. This is the war in which my uncles were involved, Veiko and Galle and Hamel were all fighting. My dad was too young to fight. Um, and so my dad, obviously, um, like I said earlier, went to Finland, uh, to Helsinki and ended up working as um, a sailor on a merchant marine ship. And on that merchant marine ship, ship of Babu, um, there were uh, Nazis um, as anti-aircraft gunners. They didn't really have any association with them, but they were definitely there. They were transporting goods between Poland, Germany, and um and Helsinki. So it was really about this move, movement of war materials. And then on September 19th, 1944, the war ended. There was signing of the Moscow armistice. Um, and part of the conditions of that was that they would, uh, Finland would have to expel all German troops from Finnish territory. And then the borders were restored to the, you know, 1940 levels from the Moscow Peace Treaty. Um, Finland had to pay $300 million in war reparations to the Soviet Union and um, acknowledged that they were partially responsible for this war and that they had some kind of alliance, this military alliance with Germany. So when my dad, when this armistice was signed, my dad's boat was in Gdansk, which was Danzig at the time. And by September 19th, or a couple days later, um, they, the boat was uh, detained. They were not allowed to leave the port. And then the sailors were arrested and including the ships. So my dad's ship, the Bapu, as well, the Boer 6 and the Mercator and a, few, a little bit, oh, I think a week later, the Ellen. So all finished ships, about 90 sailors in total, um, including a few women. And of course, um, it's like I say, my dad and some of the other sailors were, you know, 16 and, um, you know, kind of minors. Um, so they were marched to this warehouse at first, and then they were marched to another dance hall and the Nazis really tried to enlist them to work for them. But all of the Finns said, no, they would not do it. And they chose the concentration camp over, um, you know, working for the Nazis. Um, and then they were sent uh, by cattle car to Stutthof concentration camp where they were detained until, um, they, well, they had, there was two death marches and until they were liberated. So, you know, it was really uh, unimaginable how this happened, that one, one minute you're kind of have this military alliance and then the next minute you're being arrested. But that is how these things go, these, these wars. Who is Veiko? What does he experience? So Vaco is my uncle, uh, but I never had the privilege of meeting him. 
Um, he was about eight years older than my dad. And during the continuation of war, he was a ski trooper. So one of the um, soldiers who wore skis and wore um, the white camouflage, so they would become un un undetected. He would, I mean, I've heard stories of him. He is a really excellent skier as a young boy, and he won lots of competitions. And, you know, he was uh, sort of a dynamic guy. But he was uh, 22 years old in 1942. And he was, when he was skiing, as with many of those ski troopers, he caught pneumonia. And um, shortly after he died, um, just not long after he met his, his newborn son. So it was a very terrible, terrible time. Um, and I never got to know him, but I know that that was important loss for my father. It was very devastating for him that he lost his brother in this way. How did your father Arn go about sharing the information with you that this book is based on? How long did it take for you to learn all that you did about his experiences. How did this feel for you and for him? How did he go about telling you these stories? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful question because I think this sharing and interviewing style of um, getting information to write people's stories can be, can really vary depending on um, the person who who's who you're working with the subject you're working with so as I said um, earlier I um, really needed to understand everything I could about the war before I started interviewing him and I did prepare questions but he was clearly getting ready for the interviews in the week before I came so I think he was probably thinking about it all week and thinking about what he wanted to talk about and when I got there on a, on, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, I'd have my tape recorder out I'd have my laptop out and I would um, get started and he would start telling me stories and, um, you know, he just let it flow. And then of course I would interrupt and ask questions or clarification, but for the most part, I just let him talk. I think he just needed to like, let those stories out in whatever order. So, I mean, it was a little bit confusing for me because I had notes about this thing. And then his, as, as you do, when you're telling a story, you now move to that thing. It triggers a memory about that thing over there. And so my notes were kind of everywhere and I was trying to, you know, I went back to organize them later, but he would tell me, um, you know, what the, the kind of things that were important to him, I think the, the, those vivid memories about his childhood and life in Canada, even. Um, but I really think that although I have some very sort of devastating things that ha happened to him in this book, I'm sure there are things he couldn't talk about that he did no longer remembered or, or that were shut out that he could not access anymore. I'm sure there were, this isn't the whole story, right? And memory is such that memory is unreliable. I think some things are very vivid to us. They stick with us in really amazing detail and other things get buried underneath or get suppressed. So I'm sure there were things that he just couldn't talk about um, I would say we worked on this book from, uh, in, in terms of interviews from January, 2012 through to about July, 2012. And I would say that was at least once a week for several hours on a Sunday, it was kind of our routine and the way we could fit things in. And then after that, it was me writing 
and giving him copies and him reading and giving me notes and back and forth and lots of phone calls and lots of me stopping by to say, Hey, tell me about this again. And sometimes he retold the same story that he'd already told me. I mean, he was 84 and didn't remember he had told me, but he might tell me and new details would come up or it would be more fleshed out than the last time. So I loved that because I just kept taking notes and not, I would never say, oh, you already told me that story because I thought, oh, the more you talk about it, the more the memories are coming forward. So it would mean that I would get, and first I would get more details, but also he, I think was just remembering more because he was living in those moments more often. So it was really a process. We ended up self-publishing it in 2015 because at that time I was getting really worried about his health and I just, we just wanted to get it out. And initially it was really for us. It was for the family. And then we had a lot of friends and relatives who were interested in, in reading it too. So we thought, okay, well, we'll self-publish it and then people can, we can distribute it and whatnot. Um, but in 2017, it got picked up by a traditional publisher here in Sudbury, Ladder 246, and they published it, which was lovely. And he uh, came to, um, well, in fact, we had a launch and he was supposed to come and I got a phone call that he was in the hospital. Um, but luckily he was able to, like he told all the nurses and the doctors, I have to be at this book launch. And he, he made it, he came, he wasn't looking so great, but he came and, you know, that was wonderful because he, it, it, I don't know, it was just a really beautiful moment for us to be together, um, to see this book being launched in this way and how well received it was by, um, other people. And like I say, we also went to a variety of book events, book signings and various things together. And he was able to sign his name for people and talk to people and they asked him questions. And, and it was just um, such a touching thing to be able to, to um, talk to people about his story and to see him be able to do that after all those months and months and months of, of interviews in which he could barely, you know, sometimes I worry that he wasn't going to be able to talk about it at all. Um, so for, I think it was really gratifying for, for, for me to see that, that this process was probably a therapeutic one for him because I did worry about interviewing him and it making things worse, that he was reliving this trauma, that it, he would, that this would be devastating to him. So that was a real worry. And then the other thing that happened to us, which was really special is, um, after going to the, um, Holocaust Memorial Museum in, um, in the West in Washington, we were invited to go to the 20th anniversary of the Holocaust Museum. And it was for honoring the veterans and the survivors. So we had this amazing, um, moment to see him honored this way. And he met other veterans and other Holocaust survivors. Uh, Elie Wiesel was his keynote speaker. Um, it was just amazing to be there and surrounded by all these people who had experienced such similar things. And, and then later on, once I had a copy of the book, I was also able, I brought a group of my students here from Sudbury to the museum, and I was able to hand deliver a copy of his book to the library. And they were just so grateful to have it. So, you know, it, it was, it was a difficult journey for both of us, but also really rewarding. And I'm, I'm forever grateful that he allowed me to do this process with him 
and to write his story. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you are working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? Yes, I just had a book released in October called Sisters Winter War, which is a novel set during uh, the Winter War and also during um, the 1980 Northern Ontario. So that book has just come out. I'm also uh, working on two other books that I'm editing. So they're in almost completed forms. One is called Dreams of Corellia. It might, the title might change, but it's about two Finnish domestic workers living in a mining town during the Great Depression. Um, and the other one is called The Hanging Tree about a young girl who is sent from Finland during the Winter War to Sweden as a Finnish war child and her experiences there. And I'm also working on finishing my certification to become a, a book coach. And I'm excited to be working with, you know, aspiring writers, either at the beginning of their project or through a manuscript evaluation um, or through the process of writing. So that will be an exciting um, new work for me. And finally, I am planning right now a novel, a contemporary novel set in Northern Ontario um, that I hope to start um, really drafting in the fall. So lots of things on the go and exciting projects um, forthcoming. I hope those projects will flourish and prosper. Oh, thank you, Ari. I appreciate that. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm signing off by reminding you that I am Ari Barbalet, your host today on the new Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Lisa Kovala. She is an author, a teacher, and a book coach. We have been discussing her publication of the life of her father presented in the following book. Surviving Stutthof, My Father's Memories Behind the Death Gate, published in Sudbury, Ontario, by Latitude 46 Publishers, 2017. Thank you.